Thank you very much, Malcolm. Uh, as Malcolm says, we've known each other for a long, long time. We've traveled a lot together. Um, he rescued me once. Uh, we're in Armenia. And um, I, uh, in those days, now I've had cataract surgery, so I only need my glasses for reading. Okay, otherwise, so well, I have them when I'm teaching, so I look at my notes. Uh, but I used to be so short-sighted, I just couldn't see a thing, you know, it was really bad. And uh, I once broke them in, the, in a very strange shower room in a, somebody's flat in Armenia and I couldn't find my way out of the room. <laughs> it was terrible. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see where I was. Fortunately, and don't get your imagination going too far here, but <laughs> fortunately, I just, I just kept calling, Malcolm! <laughs> Malcolm, and he came and rescued me. It was, so I've always been grateful to him. We worked well together. Uh, we've ministered a lot together as well in lots of different places. And uh, so it's great to renew, renew relationships because obviously my, uh, I'm not generally involved with you guys in commission. Um, and uh, so, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to introduce firstly what, what Malcolm has slightly touched on in terms of my own history on this. Then I'm going to look at, like, re-establish the foundation of Ephesians 4 in terms of our general practice. Then I'm going to do a final section which I touched on in my uh, talk on whenever it was. Friday morning in terms of how now we see Ephesians 4 in a broader perspective than we used to see it. Okay, so that's where we're going. Um, if there's, I'll, I'll try and leave time for questions at the end. So, um, but if there's something where you just don't get what I'm saying at all at some point, feel free to interrupt me. I, I, I respond well to interruptions. So, uh, that's absolutely fine. Is that right? So that's where we're going. So, yeah, my, my own role in this respect has developed over the years. Um, as Malcolm said, I was an international banker and uh, also for a while being an international banker and leading a church. Um, so that meant traveling down to London from Bedford every day, getting back late. Um, all my trips, I was traveling the world, all my trips were at less than 48 hours notice. And when I left, I didn't know whether I was going for three days or three weeks. There was no communication, no mobile phones. The places I went to had no phones. So it was interesting leading a church and doing that. Uh, <laughs> So, um, and then really felt God calling me. And as far as I was concerned, he was calling me to lead what was then 
a small church on a small housing estate in a small town in a, in a small island. Okay, uh, so that was Bedford in England. We're a small island, you know that. Okay, we have a small island mentality very often. One of the things I find strange really when I, because I've ministered a lot in Russia, and of course, when we gather leaders for our prayer day in Russia, maybe just a day, but many of them travel 14 hours or more to get there. Okay, and then I hear people saying, oh, well, to go, the prayer meeting's an hour away, you know? It's, it's, I'm in Dorset, that's in Devon. <laughs> and I think, yeah. So we have a small island mentality. Uh, but I felt that was God's call. I'll just do that. To me, that was a massive change because I uh, used to love travel. But I remember saying to the Lord, okay, if you want me to lead a small church, as it was then, on a small housing estate in a small town for the rest of my life, that's fine by me. I know that, I, I still remember that moment because I was kneeling on the floor in the church building, banging on the floor because I wanted to do more, but God spoke to me. That was to be my commitment. No more travel if necessary. But then somehow God started to open things up and I've started to serve along with Malcolm on a team actually uh, that served um, in those days New Frontiers was so tiny that they had one team one apostolic team serving Sussex another serving London and Kent and one that Malcolm and I were on that served the U rest of the UK <laughs> do you remember? so very strange uh, and um, so I began to serve other churches a little bit and then God spoke to me when I was on holiday in Turkey, actually, and traveled from Ephesus, which we went round to see with the family, to what I found out was Colossae and Laodicea. And I, I just thought to myself, because Paul planted Colossae and Laodicea from Ephesus, from teaching in the Hall of Tyrannus. And I felt God say to me, Oh, I said to the Lord, actually, this is a very big region we covered, because I had a small island mentality. And um, God spoke, it's the nearest I've ever had to an audible voice. Would you like to plant a whole region of churches as well? And I just said, yes, I would, Lord. So he said, well, ask me, the 50 churches in the Midlands area of the UK, where we had virtually no churches at all at that time, New Frontiers, asked me for 50 churches. And uh, so I did. He also told me I'd do it until the year 2000. This was 95. Um, didn't say we get 50 churches by 2000 but that's when I would be serving. And so 
was again one of those amazing seeds. You know what I mean? And I, I thought, is this really God? And then there were two young ladies sitting in the bus opposite us. And they turned to me at that point when it just happened and said, you're David Devonish, aren't you? Never seen them before. They said, oh, yeah, we were at Stonely Bible Week. We heard you preach. And it just came as an amazing confirmation. So I went back and just announced, anyone want to plant churches in the, middle of, in the Midlands of England? We're going to train you. Come. Loads came. Lots of people have been talked to about it. And suddenly, and then we founded all those churches. I used to preach in Bedford in the morning, and then I'll go up somewhere in the Midlands in the evening, gather all these small groups together, train them, teach them, lay foundations in them. And then people started saying, well, that's like an apostolic ministry. That's what you're doing. I wasn't expecting that. That's what people began to say. And then in the year 2000, because I knew I handed that over. I've always been handing things over all my life. Very important thing to do. And started serving in two areas. The first, the Russian-speaking world. God had just joined my heart to them. And the second, the Muslim-majority world, which I was alluding to this morning because we were on live stream, which I hope we're not now. Because uh, <laughs> we, we were on live stream, I couldn't say it exactly. Started church planting in the Muslim world. Of course, there was a strong overlap because in southern Russia there's lots of Muslim people groups. And again, it just... So what we've done there over the years, now in the Russian, what we call the Russian speaking world, okay, where we gather them together, we've now got apostolic teams, indigenous apostolic teams functioning there, about five of them, five or six, uh, around 200 churches, I guess. And, and then we've planted churches in the Muslim world as well. What I do now mainly is coach other apostolic leaders. So I'll be off to um, East Africa soon, um, in the beginning of next year, where we're training guys who are, related, who are beginning to relate to us with apostolic call, um, between them, they represent probably four or five hundred churches. Just to get this momentum going. Because Ephesians 4, and this is where I'm leading into, is dynamic, not static. We often think of it in terms, traditionally, as, Ma as Malcolm said, in the days when we, everyone was reading Ephesians 4. I remember those days. It was the only page in my Bible that I had to sellotape in because we were always teaching from it and, uh, and learning from it. We saw it much more in how our existing churches served. But actually, it's primarily not about that. It's primarily about how does the kingdom of God advance through the church to fill the world? Okay, How do we equip that to happen? It's on the move. It's mobile. It's not... If we're asking, okay, how can my church be served better? 
we're not asking the right question. The right question is, how can my church be served in order for God's mission to fill the earth with his glory best be fulfilled? It does serve the local churches, as we'll see. But it's, it's a dynamic thing. And also, as we will see later, and as I touched on on Friday, it's also how do we equip the church to fulfill its function in the world through all the members of the church expressing the kingdom in their regular work. Okay, it's not about how the church is organized. We often think of church as gathered. But the expression go to church is not in the Bible. Have you noticed that? It's when the church comes together is the expression in the Bible. So the church is at work all the time. When you're in your job, the church is at work there for the kingdom of God. But from time to time, the church gathers together. And that's important. We're not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together, the Bible says. But the church is at work all the time, 24-7, into the community. That's what it's doing. And therefore... Those leadership gifts which equip the church are there to enable that to take place. Okay? Happy? Do you get it? So it's not a static organisational thing. There's a terrible danger in seeing it as levels of management that look after the church. It's not. Okay, so let's read Ephesians 4. I'm going to read it from the... New Living Translation, uh, not because it's a better translation on this one, it is in lots of others, but because it brings it fresh to us. Okay. So, however, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. I love the way that puts it. Okay. So this section starts with the grace gift each church member has. It does not start with leadership. Okay. So to each one, God in his generosity has given a special gift. That is why scriptures say, when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that it say he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work. Amen. It's just nice to read from different translations sometimes and get fresh aspects of it. And build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith 
and knowledge of God's Son, that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. Very important in today's world. You can pick up a new teaching every day, can't you? We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Okay. So, that's Ephesians chapter 4. Um, now, we often refer to these as Ephesians more for ministries serving local churches. And the ministry gifts referred to in this section are given by the ascended Christ to his church for a purpose. They are gifts of grace. Each believer has received grace for service. Um, then the gifts referred to. You see, the word spiritual gifts is used in two ways in the Bible. Firstly, it's a gift you receive. So you might receive prophecy or you might receive tongues or interpretation of tongues or healing. But Ephesians 4 is not like that. Ephesians 4 takes people and gives them to the church. It doesn't say you have a gift of apostolic ministry. It doesn't say that. You Rather, he gives apostles to the church. Not over the church. To the church, to equip the church. In fact, one very important scripture in 1 Corinthians 12 says, in the church God has put first apostles. Not over the church. We are in the church. I am in my local church. I'm part of a home group in my local church. Even though I'm hardly ever there because I'm away, but I keep up by WhatsApp. I'm part, I'm in the church. You see, very important. He gave it to be in the church. So these are gifts of people. God blesses his church with gifts of people. It's not an abstract idea. So he gives an apostle, and he gives a prophet, and he gives an evangelist, and he gives a pastor teacher. So, um, and the objective of these leadership gifts is not to do all the ministry in the church, but to prepare all of God's people to fulfill their calling. They are therefore equipping and enabling gifts. And the result of these gifts functioning is that we come to unity. We already have, the Bible says, the unity of the Spirit. It says that at the beginning. But then we we, we move towards unity of the faith. And one of the exciting things that I'm involved with at the moment, even though there is a lot of disunity in the church and there's lots of strange doctrines coming and prosperity gospel flooding through the developing world and all this sort of stuff, which we have to resist. Nevertheless, I meet together with other network leaders from other totally different backgrounds and lots of things we're finding in common. What happening, the idea of families of churches. 
I'm being asked to talk about that. Uh, people are saying to me, how do you change from being a network to a family? It's one of the things. People are interested in that. And, uh, and so this, as these gifts work together, from all different backgrounds, it helps the church globally come to unity as well as the local church come to unity. And through maturity. Maturity is so that you're confident that people won't follow the latest fad on the God channel just because they watch that more than they listen to your sermons, if you're a pastor. You see what I mean? It's because you've brought them to maturity, and I'm so glad that in many of our churches now, people think, that, that seems a bit weird. I'm glad they've picked that up, okay? Because that means that we're equipping to maturity. Okay. Um, I wrote this book a few years ago, Fathering Leaders, Motivating Mission. That's particularly, it does refer to the other Ephesians 4 ministries, particularly on the role of the apostle, restoring the role of the apostle in today's church. Um, if you haven't read that, it actually sets out the whole apostolic foundation that we, within the New Frontiers Network, all our spheres, would subscribe to. And uh, so you may find it useful. I'm sure it's in the bookshop somewhere. So uh, I would, uh, a lot more detail on that, including why I believe apostolic ministry is for today. I don't know if any of you have any doubts about that, but just in case you do, quickly three, there's a long chapters in that book, but three reasons. Firstly, they are needed. All the gifts are needed until the church comes to unity or maturity. Has the church come to unity and maturity? No. Doesn't it need it in every generation anyway? Yes. Secondly, even in the Bible, the original apostles named were not just the 12 plus Paul, as is often alleged, but many others are referred to as having an apostolic ministry. And also, thirdly, there's been many attempts, but it's hard to divide these gifts up, these four or five gifts in Ephesians 4, as to which continue and which do not. Different, some people say, only pastor teachers now. Some say, only evangelist pastors and teachers. Others say, only prophets, evangelist pastors and teachers. I've read all of those theories. Okay? It's, it's hard to say, well, why can you say one of them does and what the others don't? And so, uh, that's ever so brief. So, happy so far? Anyone got bursting with a question so far? Okay. So, now I'm going to look at the gifts in detail very quickly. Um, firstly, apostles. The word apostle simply means sent one. So, we're all an apostolic people because we're sent into the world with the gospel. But those with the gift of an apostle equip us to do that. So, um, it used to be used as a specialist sense of a naval expedition sent on foreign service and so on. Sending people out with authority to do specific things. In the New Testament, we receive three sorts of apostle. Jesus himself, he is our great apostle, just like he's our great prophet, and he's our great evangelist, and he's our great shepherd, and he's our great teacher. Okay? So... Um, he is the only one who's all five of these. 
And then there's the apostles of the resurrection. That's the 12 who were unique. They were witnesses to the resurrection. And there's the gift of the ascended Christ sent out by the churches to serve the churches and to plant new churches. Also, it's very important to understand the family context of Scripture. We still very easily think organisation and structure. Now, you need organisation and structure, but it follows family. You see, God is Father. He has a family. And all fatherhood, it says, flows from Him. And when God announced his plan to change, transform the world, when he announced it to Abraham, what did he say? He said, through your family, your descendants, every family, we often use the word nation there, it is in later promises, that the beginning, first one is the word for clan, which is a little bit bigger than an extended family, but it's a family word. Every family or clan on earth is going to be blessed. God works in a family way rather than an organisation way. So apostles became like fathers that created apostolic families that relate to each other well, receive fathering ministry and have a family feel that produces other families as people are reached with the gospel. Do you, do you get me? This is ever so important to understand this scripture. Otherwise, it becomes a position in a hierarchy. And sadly, because loads of people now agree in apostolic ministry today. It used to be controversial when Malcolm and I were young. But that's ancient history. Now... It's, now, most people agree, but they then use it as the head of an institution. I've met this a lot in Africa, you know. In fact, they were joking with me when I last did some coaching of apostolic ministry in Africa. They said, now, you, you, they joke, you can't be an apostle. I said, what do you mean? No, he said, not, not for Africa. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you're sleeping in the same accommodation as we are. But a real apostle sleeps in, the, sleeps in the best hotel. A real apostle has the best car. Well, I don't want to be a real apostle like that. Do you know what I mean? I remember one of the guys who's now himself been recognised as an apostolic leader, apostolic leader in Ukraine. First time I met him, he said to me, at our conference, this is the first time I've been to a conference with Westerners where they slept in the same accommodation, sat at the same table for meals and talked to us rather than just doing their teaching and then going back to their hotel. I thought, wow. You see, we create families. God plans families, spiritual families as well as natural families, to bless all the families on the earth. That's the way God works. And that's one of our core values, the way and why we are like we are. Okay. So, 
being fathers to leaders and churches, therefore, is a key part of apostolic ministry. It's not the equivalent of the denominational leader. It's not the equivalent of the top of the pyramid. It's not a question of what used to be called, and I never liked the term, apostolic covering, but a family relationship. Okay. So what do they do? Well, their job description is roughly as follows. Firstly, they bring an understanding. This is a bit complicated, so forgive me. They bring an understanding of the revelation of God's overall purposes in the earth. I always teach on that. When I'm first going into place, I always teach the big story. I always teach from Genesis to Revelation showing God's plan. I can do that in 10 minutes. I can do it in a five-day conference. Paul said when he went to Ephesus, he taught them the whole plan of God or whole counsel of God or whole will of God, whatever you, translation you use. In other words, it's, innate, it's not teaching lots of abstract theology. That's important because it guards us from error. But it's showing the overall sweep of God's purposes Promises made in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ, worked out through those who are in Christ in order that the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Okay? And that's simple. But we keep teaching this. Paul kept saying, you understand my, my understanding into the mystery. What was that mystery? That all, all ethnic groups are united in Christ. And yet, most of the church, the ethnic groups, are not united in Christ. Again, I, was a, I was meeting with a South Sudanese leader just the other day. He's come to our church. He's with us for a while. Uh, came to our church. He's pretty good. His wife doesn't speak much English, but we, fortunately we have an Arabic translator in our church, so it all works. But, uh, it was my first conversation with him, and we were talking about how we can help him serve um, that part of the world. And he said, yeah, the problem is the churches, even though there's a lot of Christians, the churches are all tribal. Therefore, they add to the problems that the nation has anyway. Oh. So apostolic ministry brings this revelation of the purposes of God to unite in Christ. Okay. They lay foundations in churches. They plant, may plant them themselves or others may plant them, but they lay the foundation. That's what I've done all over the world. I know what I'm teaching. I know what is the foundation I want to lay in every church. I know how to teach it. I take other apostolic guys with me so that they can then teach it. Because we lay the foundation. We don't plant every church. Lots of people plant churches. That's fine. You don't have to be an apostle to plant churches or not many churches will get planted. But you all need to have the foundation clearly laid. That's what we do. 
All right, happy still? They involve the churches in the wider mission to reach the world. Paul announced to the church in Rome, one of the main reasons for his visit. Now just imagine, you know, at last you're getting the apostle of your movement to visit your church. So he writes to you and says, yes, I'm coming to see you in order that you can help supply all my needs to go to the unreached parts of the world. That's what Paul wrote to Rome. I'm coming to you so you can send me to Spain. The gospel has never been planted in, uh, preached in Spain. No churches have been planted in Spain. So he said to the Roman church, yeah, I'm coming to you. I want to impart some spiritual gifts. I want to gain from you. But please, then you must be involved in sending me to the unreached parts of the world. Okay? So that's what we do. So stories take time. That's the only problem. But they help, don't they? <coughs> I was doing a conference in East Ukraine just before the war started. And I was preaching on world mission, which is not unusual. And uh, this guy responded. I didn't know he'd responded. It was one of those seeds. But he responded and felt God was calling him to the un unreached parts of northern India. So he decided, he and his family decided to go. They were from East Ukraine. Then the war started. What can you do? Well, he'd just gone to India, supported by these churches that were now ravaged by war, where lots of their members had fled as refugees, who have always consistently supported this family in India, even though they're in, in, in war and have nothing. Mind you, it was quite good when he went to India because the Indians couldn't quite understand that there was a white man come who was much poorer than they were. <laughs> but... Uh, and then he saw on the internet that his house in Donetsk was destroyed. So I thought, oh, we'll have to stay. Now, that, that's involving, so he's planted quite a lot of churches now. And he's now looking, perhaps we'll go on to Vietnam. Yeah? That's what Apostles Among the Ministry does. It calls people, even out of those poverty situations to world mission. So, uh, then apostolic ministry is very concerned about the poor. In fact, that was the only condition that the uh, other apostles gave Paul. Yeah, we recognize your apostolic ministry. We'll give you the right hand of fellowship, but don't all, but please remember the poor. That because that the gospel Please, the gospel's for the rich as well, of course. But there's this emphasis on the gospel for the poor and God transforming society through the gospel that is very, very important. Okay? But that introduces us to what I'm going to talk about on the fresh understanding of Ephesians 4, that it has a kingdom and not just a church 
outworking. Because one of the clearest demonstrations of the kingdom is good news to the poor. Okay. Where the foundation is lacking, then the apostles check it out and put it in. You know, Philip had a revival in Samaria. So we might think, ah, great revival. We don't need to do any more. Philip's done it. Except that the people hadn't been individually baptized in the Spirit. So Peter and John went down and made that foundation sure. I've done that in some places. Places that are very lively, but the people haven't been baptized in the Spirit. I remember going to one place in Africa once and to an Englishman, it looked like a place because we sometimes judge by externals and everyone was dancing in the worship and in England, they were mainly spirit-filled churches that danced in the worship. Then I realized, yeah, but our Africans dance at their political meetings as well. Okay, it's part of the culture. You dance, of course. Hallelujah. But hadn't been baptized in the Spirit. So I remember doing this massive Holy Spirit baptism thing and my interpreter was running along the rows because I couldn't understand whether they were speaking in tongues or their own language. So <laughs> running along the rows, listening, and they go, okay. <laughs> so... So you fill in the foundation. And prophets, what do they do? Oh, we know what prophets do. They come and prophesy. Yes, but they equip the church. There's a difference between a prophet and prophesying. All can prophesy, but a prophet is one who characteristically moves in prophetic gifts, has proven character, because for any leadership gift, there has to be godly character, and prophets are not exempt from that. Proven fruit and an ability to discern what the Holy Spirit is doing. Yeah, that's what prophets do. Um, examples in the, Old in the New Testament are people like Agabus, who gave a lot of personal prophecy and prophesied of famine, and Judas and Silas, who took a decision and encouraged the churches. And so prophets bring the now word of God for the church internationally, nationally, and specifically for the local church. Okay? They bring a sense of vision and direction. They impart gifting and produce, help produce a church which moves in the charismatic gifts. And they discern gifting. By the way, all prophetic words need to be weighed even if they come from a prophet. That's important. Old Testament, if you prophesied what was wrong, you got stoned. New Testament, you get tested. Fortunately, we're in a different era, you know. <laughs> but you test it, even if it's from a prophet, which is important. Because the Bible says we all prophesy in part, including the prophets. Okay, but the gift is very important. And the gift works with the apostle to lay the foundation. And, and I remember being asked to teach on the prophetic foundation rather than the apostolic foundation once. And I thought, hold on, I researched it for ages. I thought, well, what's the prophetic foundation compared to the apostolic foundation? And I suddenly realized 
They're the same foundation. It's just that you have different gifts bringing the teaching in unity together to produce an understanding of it. Because it's still, prophets aren't ones that just bring amazing, accurate words, although that's in part of it, but they also, also understand the overall purposes of God in the earth, which I described at the beginning. Okay. Happy? Come on, I'm not getting much feedback, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's very, very important. Yes, discerning also. Yeah, prophetic discernment of what the enemy is doing in a situation. That's very important as well, yes. And so the words, even like the prophetic words of the churches in Revelation, are actually pointing out what was not good in the situation as well as encouraging what was. Yeah. Prophetic gift. Okay, I'll repeat the question, yes. What do you do, theoretically speaking, of course, what do you do if you have very strong apostolic gift in a movement, but not so much prophetic gift? I would say a movement needs prophetic gift, therefore and this applies to all the Ephesians 4 ministry, where it's not strong, you invite it in, and that stimulates it where you are. Okay? So, um, I know that some of the contexts I'm working in, in other, I have been working in in other nations, and yeah, they've now got the apostolic, but a weak in the prophetic, but we're sending some of our senior prophets in there to help raise up the indigenous prophets, just like we raised up the indigenous apostles. Okay. Good. Evangelists. What do they do? Well, that's easy, isn't it? They preach the gospel and thousands get saved. Yeah, partly. But they're all given to equip the church. So the role of an evangelist, according to Ephesians 4 is to equip the church to be good at sharing their faith, to be evangelistic as a body. They equip the church for that. Okay. Of course, they need to be personally good at sharing the gospel, either to crowds or to indiv- or one by one. It doesn't matter, because otherwise they haven't got any credibility in what they're doing. But they're there to equip the church for it as well. And it's important sometimes, if you're getting very little evangelistic breakthrough in your church, you need to get an evangelist in. Not to do it for you, though some of that will be done, but to equip the church to do it. This is very practical. Some some evangelists may travel to equip other churches. Some may function within a local church. They may be particularly used to help open up new areas, geographic or social where there's been little evangelistic breakthrough. Then pastor-teacher. The grammar could suggest this is one function, although in practice it's not always the case. Some teachers are not brilliant pastors. Some pastors are not brilliant teachers. But in Ephesians 4, the grammar suggests it's pastor-teacher. And just pragmatically, it doesn't always work that way. Again, they 
I mean, shepherd, you understand that. It's unfortunate, really, that because of the word pastor becoming universal, often, and I even find this in new countries, so in, in Turkey, they tried very strongly, some of the Turkish leaders, to keep the word shepherd rather than the Western word pastor because it suggested hierarchy in the church and all that sort of thing. Um, but fighting a losing battle, really. But we need to keep stressing that that's actually what it means. So it's shepherd. Okay, it's not a title. It's a function. In fact, usually when it's used in the New Testament, other than of Jesus, it's in verb form, do shepherding. Ephesians 4 is the only time other than of Jesus it's used as a noun. Generally, it's shepherd the flock of God. Okay? So it's not a title at all. Now, we have to use it because to the world outside, they understand what a pastor is. They don't understand always what a lead elder is. Even though, actually, I think lead elder's better. Although lead elder isn't in Bible either, so uh, <laughs> we're struggling a little bit. But a team, but in the Bible, a team needs a leader. Yeah. Okay, one moment, and I'll come on to it. Promise. Okay. So what do they, what do pastor teachers do? They well teachers lead the sheep so that they can learn to feed for themselves. You know, they don't keep stuffing the grass into the sheep's mouth. <laughs> okay, they lead the sheep so that they can understand word of God for themselves and teach them the word of God so they can do that. It's very important. They're equipping the church. And so they can explain truth to other people. They produce one another care in the church. Pastor doesn't do all the caring. They equip the church to care. They ensure that members of the church are both well taught and trained to teach others also. They can discern wrong doctrine and deal with it so that people are not led astray. Some may, by virtue of their capacity, have a wider sphere of influence and being part of an apostolic team, but in a pastor gift. Okay, so they're serving other churches. But sometimes in New Frontiers, we've used the expression Ephesians 4 pastors as if they're a different breed from other pastors. That is not there at all in the Bible. Okay, all pastors are Ephesians 4 pastors. They're there to equip the church. But some have a, because of their capacity, their gift, and their time availability to serve other churches in a pastoral capacity. Yeah? Apostle, by definition, is a sent one. So whilst they may at some point build a brilliant base church like Paul did in Ephesus, in the end, there's a sending of them which must involve travel and going from place to place. 
or at least being able to benefit from others in some way. So the Apostle James didn't travel much as far as we can tell, but he wrote, he obviously had an influence on the refugees who were scattered during the persecution and went to Syria and other places, and he wrote a letter to them, and so therefore his apostolic work was inf influencing others. Okay? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, elders and deacons, yeah. <sighs> Ephesians 4 is the charisma, the gift. Elders and deacons are the governance, if you like, of the local church. So you may have a team of elders with different gifts. One is more prophetic, one more evangelistic, one more teaching. They all care. Because actually, I believe a shepherd gift underlines every other gift. If I'm not a shepherd, I won't be my very good apostle. I'm a shepherd, essentially. That's what I am, really. But, so elders, in terms of their role, which isn't my subject, but I'll just say that, uh, so I'm not going to go into detail. They are the government of the local church, but they may have different charisma depending on Ephesians 4, okay? Deacons are those that uh, serve to assist the church and the elders, often taking responsibility for particular areas of church ministry. Whether you call them deacons or not, you have them. Uh, and uh, so th th that's how it works out in a local church, um, whereas this is talking about the charisma, which is in, involved in it. Is that right? Okay, great. Good. Okay. How does it work in practice? Oh, dear. Ah. Oh. Church is led by a team of elders and others supported by other senior leaders like deacons. There you are. Okay. It was my next point. You've obviously got a prophetic insight there. Okay. <laughs> And those churches are served by an apostolic team who input them according to particular needs at particular times. It's not a question of three times a year visits. It's what is needed. In fact, Paul was pleading with churches to get themselves sorted out so that he could move on to the regions beyond. Now, a mature church shouldn't need someone sitting with their elders every three months. But outside input is needed in times of crisis, in times of transition, and or in times of major moves forward. But sometimes we got into this, oh, I don't know, oh, it happened a wee bit. You got into this sort of an eldership team and a regional team, and they regularly input the elders. That is not the idea. The idea more is, yes, we serve those churches, but I found apostles lay the foundations and get involved, them involved in the commission mission, in your case. Doesn't mean they have to keep visiting, but there may be times when a visit is needed because of the issues. So 
It's not an extra layer of management that regularly checks up on the local elders. You see what I mean? Not that at all. It's serving the church and the leaders of that church as that is needed. And it's obviously needed at the beginning. You've got to lay the foundations. And this is very important in my view. The apostolic team person inputting a church, and of course different ones will input, but there may be one primarily responsible. That's, that tends to how we work. That's pragmatic, not, not, not unbiblical or biblical. It's pragmatic. Um, and that person is not super pastor. I remember I got into this for a while. I was serving, well, I was just serving a few churches. It's impossible now. But when I was just serving a few churches, I'm now serving multiple apostolic teams. Do you know what I mean? So it's a very different role. But they keep bringing all their tough pastoral situations to me. And because I'm a pastor, I got into that. And I thought, oh, come on, come on. Elders lead the church. Elders care for the flock. They may need advice from time to time on things, but we're not super pastor who deals with the difficult stuff. Unless it's a tension in the eldership team. Which very rarely happens, but it does occasionally. Okay. <laughs> so, also, apostolic teams teach the principles, not the details, to how to work it out in your home church. Very important. I know when I first got involved in Russia, they expected the senior guy to tell them what to do because that's the culture. Okay? Weissiller and I used to live there three months a year because the only way of changing that approach was to actually live and show how team ministry functioned. They all agreed in team ministry in principle of being biblical, but there was nothing in the culture to reflect it. So there were no models. So we had to provide them. And uh, so I forgot where I was going then. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah. And so they kept asking me, what should we do in this situation? And I would never answer the question. I would explain the principles. And they said, and they got mad with me at times. Just tell us what to do. No. Tell you the principles, you work it out. Especially as you're better equipped to work it out in your context. I always feel, uh, I shouldn't tell you the truth, but sometimes I take people with me and a question comes up in an eldership team or something and they immediately tell them exactly how they do it in their home church, which often is totally irrelevant for the context where they are. Because the issues are totally different. The culture is totally different. So I said, well, don't tell them what you're doing unless it's to illustrate a principle and you're making that very clear. Otherwise, people copy externals and don't get hold of what, how they're to properly contextually work out what they do. One of the 
the things I often teach on apostolic ministry, I didn't today because I don't have time, but I'm now saying it. One of the things they need to learn to do is bring contextualized wisdom. You find Paul's writings are full of how it applies in that context. It's almost contradictory in different epistles sometimes because it's contextualized wisdom. You know, Timothy got circumcised to join an apostolic team. Titus, he refused to have him circumcised. Come on, consistency, please, Paul. No, no, it's contextual. Okay. Yeah. prophet my next point we serve at the invitation of the local elders okay <laughs> uh, but when invited we have relational authority so it's not that you are you serve by invitation therefore you're just an external advisor there's relational authority that comes with that, but you're still serving at the invitation of the local elders, and we believe in the autonomy of the local church. Okay? This is a, it's a difficult balance. I know when it works, but it's often hard to describe. Okay? Because there is authority. In fact, I'm going to do some teaching on spiritual authority when I gather all the apostolic leaders of New Frontiers together and shortly. I'm going to teach on those sort of things because how does it work? I'm, going to, I'm studying both epistles of Corinthians to see how Paul implemented spiritual authority. And it's relational, but having established the relationship, it is real. But it doesn't rule over your faith. It's a... It's a you. I don't, you know, if you just became consultants, then we'd lose it all. Well, can't, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be interested in the job if we just do that. But we also serve and we're not over in the hierarchic sense. Okay? Sorry that's subtle, but it's important and we live it out. Also, the relationship with the, between the apostolic team is with the church, not just with the elders. There's only one letter Paul wrote, including the elders and deacons. That was the one to the Philippians. All his other letters that weren't to individuals like Timothy and so on were to the church. So it's important there's a relationship that the church has confidence in those who are inputting them and not just the leaders. And certainly not just the lead elder. However, there's an exception to the relational authority. And we have to act if there's moral or financial sin in an elder. There's heretical doctrine being taught. Or there's domineering authority being exercised. On those three things, you're responsible as an apostolic team to the church to help them be free of either of those three things in a leader. And I've had to do all three. 
not often, hallelujah. The three things are moral or financial sin, teaching heretical doctrine. I don't mean something that's a bit slightly off. I mean contrary to the core of the Christian faith or contrary to our values of the movement. And exercising domineering authority. In all those three, I've had to move into a church and say, we're taking disciplinary action here and my relationship. That's why I had to remove an elder in a church right on the other side of the world, a lead elder. Um, and fortunately, uh, Silla and I had spent a month in that church the previous year, which meant I wasn't the guy from headquarters. I was someone they trusted when we had to take their leader out of ministry. Doesn't often happen. Very rare. Praise God. God. I'll move on. So what's the fresh look? I did touch on it the other day, and I'm sorry it's taking so long to get there, but when I was briefed for this thing, I'll blame them. When I was briefed, I said, reinforce what we do and then do the fresh. So I've done that. It just took a bit longer than I thought. Okay. But I touched on this the other morning because I've recently had a fresh look at Ephesians 4 in the light of the truth of the kingdom and not just the church. So, and I read this in a brilliant commentary on Ephesians and I put it up the other day, but I'll read it to you again and I'm afraid I haven't got a PowerPoint in here. It's saying that the gifts, and this is the question that came up about what's ascending and descending got to do with it. Who asked that? Okay. Uh, it follows a reference to the ascension of Christ showing his authority over principalities and powers. Having achieved dominion over all the evil powers through his victorious ascent, he sovereignly distributes gifts to the members of the body. The building of the body is inextricably linked with his intention of filling the universe with his rule since the church is his instrument in carrying out his purposes for the cosmos. All of Ephesians, is the early part, is about that Christ may fill everything, that Christ may reign, Christ is head over everything to the church. And so what it's saying is, yes, it's a reference actually to Psalm 68, where the conquering king takes his position on high and has taken captives and then distributes the gifts to others. It's, it's not quite clear in the psalm. It's almost as if it's misquoted. Part of that's because it's quoted from the Greek translation of the Old Testament and so on. But what it, what it is teaching is when Christ went into death and ascended, he overcame all the principalities and powers. He took, if you like, he robbed the enemy of his, all his authority and everything and then gave gifts, which a conquering hero does, gives gifts to his people to enable them to, well, in the conquering hero's time, it's just to bless them. But for us, it's to enable the reign of Christ to be demonstrated in every sphere of life we come in contact with. Does that help? So that's the context. 
And that's the context which demonstrates that this is kingdom, not just church. So we are equipping the church to move in their gifts and their spiritual authority in every sphere of life so that they can affect things for the reign of Christ where they are. They may not be able to do that openly, but they do it nevertheless by who they are, by their character. Toppy talked about it last night. You know, if you're a doctor, be a kingdom doctor. doesn't mean you're preaching the gospel all the time you're doing it. It means you, can, you care for the person. I'm not saying secular doctors don't all do this. But you'll care for the person as if you're caring for someone in your family or your church. Do you, do you understand? You're demonstrating that. You're amenable. You're not, if you're the boss of a large company, you don't just give out your orders. You genuinely equip the people. You love the people. You don't want your salary to be too much higher than theirs. Right? Because you're being Christian about it. And so we're equipping, these gifts are equipping the church scattered, which is where the church is most of the time. All the week they're scattered, come together for their home group, or they may come together for a prayer meeting, or come together for the um, Sunday meeting. But most of the time they are scattered, working out the, the bringing in measure, because the kingdom has not come yet come in its fullness and won't until Jesus returns, but in measure, enabling the, the glory of Christ to fill everything. Do you understand? Now that is the fresh emphasis. Because in the past, we mainly taught it, almost exclusively taught it, in relation to how the church functions, how the church is organized, how the Church, what values are taught in the church, but actually the purpose of having gifts, values, and fruits of the Spirit is in order that you may live by those wherever you are. So often, Christians sadly live in a divided world. So this is how you behave in the church, but this is how you behave in the world. I don't mean you overtly sin. You know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you lead your company or you whatever, like every other person who leads a company. But then you come to church and you're a Christian there. But that's not how it is because Christ must fill everything. Do you, and this is very important. So now, when I'm equipping churches, or say I mainly coach apostolic teams to do it, we're talking not just about how the home groups are sorted and what, you know. Sorry, I'm, that's being unfair. We're doing much more important stuff than that. But we're not just how the church is structured and how it's worms, but how the people of the church bring the kingdom where they are. And we knew you, you use examples for that. At our festival, the last two years, we've had main stage speaking from people in the workplace because we're wanting to equip we're the Ephesians 4 ministries. It doesn't mean they're the Ephesians 4 ministries. We are. But we're wanting people to be equipped. So one, we had a lady who's the, a woman governor of a maximum security prison who's in one of our churches, did a 20-minute 
teach on leadership principles in the world. And from her position, that was jolly sight more effective. Well, I could just about do it because I used to be one, but not a governor of a prison. I mean, I was in senior management. But the, you understand? We're equipping the church. Last year, we had someone do it who's uh, head of a whole group of academies causing failing schools to now succeed. We, had, we then had him up to speak at one of our conferences in our home church because it was brilliant. Because we wanted to equip the church for the work of the ministry in the world. Get it or not? Do you want to stone me? Is this a heresy? Are you okay? And all the four, all the four or five gifts are meant to be doing that. Okay, so... Ephesians 4 ministries are not just about better organized churches, good doctrine, equipping everyone to prophesy, but enabling the church to be released in its kingdom purposes. Yes? That's right. For eldership, and I would say apostolic oversight, because they oversee the elders, yes. But for the other gifts, there can be equipping gifts of men and women, in my view. But not in the sense of government. Okay? Yeah. So that lady that I talked about was equipping the people... Okay, from her, but under our authority, it was the apostolic team's authority to ask her to do that. Yeah? Okay. Right. So the filling of the universe means that God rules everywhere. And it's why God gives gifts of ministry to enable the church to fulfill its calling. Another commentator put it like this. Christ's giving of ministers of the word to build up the whole body into his fullness is interwoven with the goal of his pervading the cosmos with his presence and rule. Hallelujah. So the one who has been given to the church as the cosmic Lord, he's head over everything to the church, himself gives to the church to equip it fully for its cosmic task. And the whole church is gifted for this purpose because the church, I'm just giving you quotes, would normally go up on a PowerPoint, but I'll just read them because they're good. As a foretaste of this grand hope, the very existence of the church, a society of pardoned rebels, a multiracial community in which Jews and Gentiles have been brought together in one body, is the means God uses to manifest his richly diverse wisdom through the principalities and powers. This is so important. And it's equipping the church to be like that. So it applies to each gift. So apostles need to see this truth of the kingdom and treat it as, and teach it as one of the foundations of the local church. I do always do that. In my teaching on church foundations, kingdom is a very important one. And how that church is equipped to live for the kingdom and each member 
in the world. So that's part of the foundation that you lay in the church. Prophets, this vision is to shape your ministry. Because although there may be insightful words of knowledge, overall vision forms the burden of the prophet and the people are then called to that vision. Let it be truly kingdom-oriented. Evangelists equip people involved in kingdom ministry to be also gospel-focused. Otherwise, you get separation of social and gospel or the social gospel, which means you do good works, but you never actually lead people to Christ in that context. Now, sometimes it takes a long time to lead people to Christ in that context, but your evangelists are equipping you to do that. You understand? We baptized just recently, just a couple of a few weeks ago, someone who had been coming to our drop-in for about nine years. So it takes a long time, but hallelujah, great testimony and baptized because we're understanding evangelists enable the social, those with the uh, doing social action to ensure that social action has a gospel aim. Doesn't mean everyone comes to Christ. It doesn't mean you only serve those who respond to the gospel. No, you do good to all. But evangelists make sure there's a gospel component to it. Pastors, we need to honour and encourage and share. So at prayer meetings, make sure you're praying for those whose grace gifts are affecting society, not just who are building up the numbers in the church. So pray, pray for your teachers. Pray for your um, school governors. Pray for those in the health service. Pray for your politicians in your church. However, don't decide, neglect disciple-making as those taking kingdom initiative can still have sometimes have ungodly attitudes. Okay? And finally, teachers, in your teaching, draw examples from all walks of life. If you're full-time, which some of you may be, anyone full-time here? There's a few around the sides, aren't there? Okay. If you're in full-time Christian ministry, you can get detached and only use examples from corporate church or personal family life. That's a danger. Always think, how does my teaching on Sunday equip and disciple artists, engineers, school teachers, those who lose their job, those who are tough on zero-hours contracts and are suffering the other pressures of today's world? Use those as examples. And if you're in touch with your people, equipping them this way, you will do that. Because this is to spread the grace of God everywhere and bring the rule of Christ into all aspects of society. I've got seven, eight minutes for questions. Yeah. right okay yeah that's the question is um there's some teach he understands what i'm saying about these five gifts equipping the church to do the work in the world but there is teaching around that you get business place upon business area apostles and and so the fivefold works into as it said 
I've heard this teaching. I've been at a conference when I did an apostolic ministry in another setting, and somebody in came in to teach this as well. You know, the, the fivefold is everything. So you're either an apostle to your work or you're a prophet to your work and so on. Um, I personally feel that's going beyond Scripture because these gifts are very clearly to equip the church to do that in the world. So I don't accept that teaching, even though I've got a lot of respect, actually, for some of the people that are teaching it, actually, because I think they've got lots of other good things to say. Nevertheless... In each one of us, there are motivations that correspond to those fivefold ministries. Do, do, do you understand what I mean? So there are those who are always thinking their motivation is like apostolic. It's thinking of the next thing to do. People whose motivation is visionary, like the prophet. People whose motivation... so. And I know some people I respect who don't teach that, but do teach that, he, like in every home group, there needs to be people with those motivations. Not an apostle in every home group, but at least they need to be those with different, the different motivations. So I, I can go along with that, but I wouldn't go along with saying your marketplace apostles or your marketplace prophets, as, as some have taught. Is that Anything else? Does that mean everyone's asleep? Or, oh, sorry, forgive me. No, there needs to be a step before. So, if I, oh, the, sorry, Malcolm. The question was, when I said weighing prophecy, does that mean it's weighed as it's given, or is it something else? What I would say is there is a measure of weighing when a prophecy is given. I remember one person who I had to, in the end, ask to stop prophesying because whenever he prophesied, every head in the congregation went down and no one dared look up and all that sort of stuff. So there is a sort of corporate weighing where people, this is just what David Pitch is called the resonance test. Nobody resonates with what is happening. But if there's a direction, if, if it's just encouragement, then just take the encouragement. But if it's, say, give someone gave a prophecy that gives some sort of direction to your life, I would say that needs to be weighed by yourself, but others close to you, and preferably with some who've got some leadership responsibility for you. Okay, if it's directional. And corporately, if it's corporate, then... Um, you, if it's affecting the whole direction of the church, that needs to be weighed both by elders, by senior leaders, because I like to make that a bit broader, and by other prophetic gifts as to whether they are bringing a similar thing. Does that help? Yes? Okay. 
Yeah, it's another huge, the question is, someone has a prophecy on a Sunday morning, can they just bring it or do they bring it to the elder who repeats a bit of it or do they get permission to bring it first? Could I I'm going to duck this simply because I believe in local elderships taking the decisions on that in their church. So in a small church or just a church plant, we may have up to 20 people, just like in a home group, you may not, you may just say, come on, just bring it and we'll chat about it. And you know, it's a very informal atmosphere. As churches grow, and then as you get to a big celebration like this, you have to apply different things. And so uh, each one having a word, yes, is completely free with, or not completely, but almost completely free within a home group setting. Obviously, if it's heresy, you don't allow it to come. But in a church 100 to 200, it's perhaps a little bit more freedom just to bring. As churches get bigger, then you have to relate the measure of the contribution to the context. But that's a local eldership decision. It's not something that other than setting out those principles that I have, that I would feel, you know, I have to give guidance on, okay, other than the principles. And then you work that out how it works in your home local church. Thanks, Dave, for your wisdom to answer and also not to answer. Thanks so much, Dave, for your teaching and your openness to questions and interruptions and so on. It's, uh, it's just a great way that you lead us and teach us. And may God bless you. Thanks for all you've given to us this weekend, Dave. And you and Scylla, thanks a lot. And uh, I'm not available for general rescues out of bathrooms or things like that. I did it once, and it was only because Dave was in a dire situation. Uh, it'll come out in the book later on. Thanks so much. If you are still interested, some of you, in asking questions, I'm sure Dave will hang around, but please don't hog him for, you know, 10 minutes each. Uh, there may be other people that can answer your question, but if you do want to speak to Dave, then come and speak to him, but don't hog him for too long. I'm just saying that for the general benefit, because sometimes leaders get stuck with one person and there's a whole queue, and then Dave's here for two hours or three hours. Well, he's unlikely to be, but... <laughs> Yeah, he's going off. The other thing, if any of you are interested in being part of this adventure together, being part of any of our smaller groups in discussing our values and how we work out, there's some forms of that. Sign them up and leave them at the back. I'll collect them. We are still wanting more people to, to engage in that. So uh, if you've got any questions about that, you can come and ask me. Okay, God bless you. Have a great afternoon.